Friday, uh, I think perhaps my lecture wasn't as clear as it might have been, so I'm going to try to uh, we'll take advantage of the fact that um, we just sort of completed the first third of the first half of the course. Like in your paper, the, uh, so the semester is divided into two halves, and each half is divided into three parts. And so, in a sense, we just finished the first third of the first half. Pretty simple math. So I wanted to summarize very quickly before we get into the Jains and, and begin this new historical period um, what, what we sort of covered, because I suspect that I, I could have been more clear in giving a big picture than I was. So first of all, the first third of the first half of the course, we basically covered a period of proto and prehistory. In other words, a period which goes beyond our ability to really uh, document what was going on. History, real history means that you've got documents, you've got engravings or books or, you know, documents that confirm each other. You can really say that this happened at this time. But in the earliest period of Indian history, it's, it's proto-history, which means it's kind of coming into focus, or prehistory, which means it's really beyond our, our, the historiographical horizon. So, in the first third, for the first half of the semester, we basically covered from proto-prehistory, remote antiquity, and where we are now is about 2,500 years ago. About 2,500 years ago, and everything starts to change, not only in India, but actually around the world, as we'll discuss. And so, what went on in this period, as far as we can tell? First of all, there's some big questions, so I, uh, which there are different opinions on, but basically in terms of Worldly scholarship, these things are very much questions, they're not resolved, there's just not enough evidence to nail it down. And so these things include the Aryans. The Aryans were the people of the Rig Veda, who gave the Rig Veda, who basically are the people that created or somehow were the carriers of Vedic culture. So where did they come from? Where did the Aryans come from? There are very different views on this. In fact, there are two schools which are sort of engaged in a culture war right now. One is the indigenous Aryan school, which is almost all Indians, and, and an increasing number of Western scholars that say that Indians have just always been in India, and they refer to the archaeological record, and so on. Then there are the people, basically the European scholars, who say, no, it comes on linguistic grounds, and fitting it into what they think they know about European ancient history, that they came from outside, mostly they say from Central Asia, and so on. So where did the Aryans come from? That's still an unresolved question in terms of, in terms of worldly scholarship. Also, the Indus Saraswati civilization, that great civilization that was discovered along the Indus River in what is now Pakistan and what is now also Northwest India. And as I mentioned, also they found most of the sites turned out to be in the Saraswati River. I mean, this little map here, they say the Saraswati River, which and the Indus River is up here. So, in the Rig Veda, the oldest Vedic literature, it stated very clearly that the center, the geographic center, and in a sense, that the, the cultural center of their civilization is the Saraswati River, which turns out to have most of the settlements of this ancient Harappan, Mahenjo-Daro, Indus, Saraswati civilization. But still, because there are no decipherable documents, there's no script, there's no books. So you have a bunch of archaeological remains, but so there's a great debate. A lot of people think it was Aryan, Vedic. Some people say it wasn't. There's different theories. That's also a question. It's still unresolved in terms of worldly scholarship. Now, another thing, uh, I went into my whole rap Friday about the Itihasa Purana, the fifth Veda, so, you know, why was I doing all that? Well, I mean, the reason was, 
that in the Mahabharata, which we're going to look at, the Ramayana, and the Puranas, it's all about gods and goddesses and adventures, great stories, very much the heart of what comes to be Hinduism. So because we have ancient Vedic literature that says Itihasa Purana is part of the canon, it's the fifth Veda, there's an unresolved question of did this ancient Vedic civilization have all these stories and all this worship? Because the Vedas themselves are not history books. They're not history books, they're not story books. They are hymns meant to be chanted and sacrificed. So we're trying to derive history from books that aren't history books. And the Itihasa, they're actually the history books, Mahabharata Ramayana. How old are they? Thousands of years ago in the early Vedic civilization, did they have these stories? Some of the Mahabharata Ramayana is obviously later interpolation, but some of it's very ancient. So back then, way back then, how broad was the culture? How much of what is now Hinduism was present back then? That's also a question. It's unresolved. Another question is, to what extent the, uh, there was really monotheism back then? And I, I, that's why I quoted uh, Friday from the Rig Veda, uh, the Purusha Sukti, in the 10th book, the, the verse from the first book of the Rig Veda, about there's one truth which is uh, talked about in different ways. And then you, I quoted from the Brahmana literature, which is the ancient commentaries. They are the ancient commentaries on the Vedas, where you have definitely monotheism. There's a supreme god, usually said to be Vishnu. And the Purusha is said to be Vishnu in very early Hinduism or late Vedic culture. And then you have the Mahabharata itself, which is, which is monotheistic. So these are all unresolved questions in terms of scholarship. And therefore, uh, the, where the Aryans came from and what was going on back then, as I said, it's a lot of it is proto-prehistory from the worldly historiographical point of view. But that's up to about 2,500 years ago. Now, when we get to about 2,500 years ago, things start to change. We start to come sort of within the historical horizon. So this is sort of a new period. Now, 2,500 years ago, all around the world, all kinds of amazing things were happening. You have Confucius in China and Lao Tzu. You have Socrates in Greece, and, and, uh, and other people will talk about in Greece, like Empedocles, who are not generally known, but they're actually very important and similar to Buddha and Mahavir, the Jain founder. And you have Buddha and Mahavir, first Mahavir and, and then uh, Siddhartha Gautam, who became known as the Buddha. And all these, what ties in all these developments from Europe all the way over to China is a very central concern with ethics, with morality, a dissatisfaction with mere rituals and sort of blind tradition and trying to really get at what is the good life, what is a moral life, and uh, wisdom and all that. So anyway, so that's sort of a summary of the first historic period of the first half of the semester, which goes all the way back to sort of pre-proto-history beyond the historical horizon to about 2,500 years. Any questions on that? No. <laughs> so. Now, I want to, you've had some of this in your, in, of course, in, in your books, but I want to sort of set the scene. What was India like? as far as we can tell. And this is somewhat speculative, but I'll give you sort of the standard mainstream academic version of it. What was India like back then when suddenly these new things start happening? Jainism, Buddhism, and actually, uh, according to historians of India, there were no less than about 63 new movements that popped up, all of them protesting the Vedic status quo. Now, uh, Jainism and Buddhism were the big winners historically in the sense that they actually survived and became prominent. 
but there were actually dozens and dozens and dozens of what historians call protest movements. What were they protesting? What was going on in India back then? So, um, so I mentioned the problems, uh, questions. There were some problems, and so I just made a list of, of problems. And as you know, it's just like politically in America, when people are dissatisfied, when a large percentage of people say in surveys that I'm not at all satisfied, things are going to hell, I don't like it. And that's an opportunity for, let's say, politicians or public intellectuals or whatever, who think they have a new message. Like, yeah, things are really bad, but here's a new way. And people respond to that. When everything's going great, like, what's the problem? We're all making money, we're all happy, our kids are happy. We don't want to change things, but when everything's miserable and there are problems, then you look for change. It's just like nowadays, for example, in America, everyone's trying to sort of, you know, two political sides are trying to get the change mantra and own it. And so it's a fight for the change mantra. Anyway, it was something like that. So back then, about 2,500 years ago in India, uh, basically the Vedic system had become what you might call an unresponsive monopoly. It's like in the old days when I was young, I'm sure way before your time, the phone company had a monopoly and they used to give terrible service. So whenever monopolies give really bad service, people want competition. They want alternatives, options. So uh, the caste system had hardened. If we look at earlier literature, we find there was some mobility, fluidity, flexibility. But about 2,500 years ago, the caste system had become very rigid. And the people on top had kind of closed off access to a lot of things that people wanted. Now, in our discussion of this, I want to bring in the concept of religious economy. And by economy, I don't just mean going to the mall and buying things. The sort of like the underlying, the most fundamental underlying principle of, of economics is supply and demand. That you want something, and somebody's got what you want, and so you negotiate, and you bargain, and so you agree on what you're going to give, so that person gives you what you want. That person wants your money, you want their product or service. So, we, we not only have, you could say, physical needs like, you know, food, drink, shelter, and so on. We actually also have, uh, you could say, religious needs. For example, uh, it's very common that parents tell their children, can't you get married in church? In other words, there's this natural tendency where people want certain rites of passage, certain events in life sacralized. They should become sacred. They should be remembered. There should be a ceremony. It should be somehow culturally and socially and religiously punctuated and, and, and emphasized. For example, birth, when some child is born. All around the world, people want some kind of blessing on their children. When their children are growing up, there's religious education when they, when they come into puberty. And, and there, there are you know, confirmations and bar mitzvahs and dikshas in India. There's all kinds of ceremonies around the world to somehow uh, take that experience of passing from childhood into adolescence, going into puberty, somehow take that experience and, and put it within a civilizing, sacralizing structure so that, so that basically the new adolescent doesn't go off the rails. And somehow that experience binds that person to their culture, the culture of their ancestors, and doesn't just send them shooting off into outer space. So these are typical rites of passage, birth ceremonies, and reaching puberty, reaching youth, marriage, and then, of course, you know, when the new children are born, and funerals. I mean, all over the world, when someone you love passes away, I mean, people need to hear, yeah, he or she went to heaven. They kind of need to hear that, and that's what priests tend to say all over the world, no matter what their official philosophy is. So, 
these rites of passage uh, were controlled by the Brahmins. Were controlled by the Brahmins. Now, you may remember there was a very important distinction we made, which really is a constant theme in the history of Indian religion. And that is there's the ritual side, and there's the knowledge side, the wisdom side. There's the Vedas and the Upanishads. You know, the Vedic Sanghitas, Rig, Yajra, Sama, Tagva, Veda. And there's the Upanishads. People are thinking. They want wisdom. The real point is not the rituals, the wisdom. So, uh, in any civilization, if you look, it's like most Christians, most Jews, most Hindus, most Muslims, most Buddhists, they're not philosophers, they're not scholars. Most people have their families, they've got a job, they want to get by, they just want to have a good life with their families and their friends. They're not philosophers. So therefore, the majority of people in this ancient Vedic civilization were not great intellectuals being Upanishads. They were people raising families. And they needed these rites of passage. And the rites of passage were controlled by the Brahmins. If you wanted a birth ceremony, a confirmation or bar mitzvah ceremony, whatever they called it back then, you know, a diksha, a ceremony. If you wanted your children married properly, if you wanted the blessings of divine power on the marriage of your children, when people died, if you wanted to make sure that they went to the best possible place when they died, you needed to have certain sacred rituals performed, and the Brahmins controlled those. And they gradually sort of, you know, they, they created this type of monopoly. And so that's the type of economic power, it's a social and cultural power, and the caste system became rigidified. So, there was a social problem, because people were kind of locked into their castes. People were sort of locked into them, there was no upward mobility. Inevitably, you have people of ability, intelligent people, that are sort of locked up below their real level. Like, I could be doing more. I could actually fix this, I could take responsibility for that project, I could lead this country, I could inspire people religiously, but it's tough luck. You are, you know, you're locked in. You don't go and register a new religious movement. So, so socially it was a problem. Politically, it was a problem. Because in this caste system, there's always been a tension historically between the Brahmins and the, and the Kshatriyas, the ruler. These are the two highest classes. They sort of compete for power. They cooperate, and there were many moments when historically when they worked together, like Brahmins really tried to give wisdom to the kings. The kings really tried to rule wisely and, and support the teachers. So it wasn't always a problem, but there were moments of tension. And at this particular point in history, there was a real tension between political leaders and religious leaders. And therefore, it's not by accident, you could say, that Jainism and Buddhism were founded by people from the political class, from the warrior class, who rejected the Brahmins. So we'll talk more about that later. So there was social tension, there was this political tension, I've mentioned there was no access to religion. And, and, and in terms of access to religion, not only did you have to have a Brahmin to do any ceremony, if you wanted blessing, people really believed in these things. People really believed that if you don't get the right ceremony, you're really not going to have an auspicious life. Do you remember that whole thing about, like, this life may really go off the rails, your next life, who knows where in the universe you're going to take birth, what's going to happen to your children, where your aunts, your mom and dad, where are they going to end up? You can't get the right rituals performed. Your mother, this is an extremely conservative, family-centered society. Your mom and dad, what's going to happen to them? Maybe they're suffering right now in some purgatory because you didn't do the ceremony for them. This was a very big thing for people. Even among the Buddhists, I shall see later. It was a, this was a very, very major thing. It's like in this life, for example, if your parents, if your parents are really in trouble, 
I mean, any, like any normal, decent person would sort of drop everything and come to the aid of their parents. So what if your parents have already passed away and, and, and their fate is in your hands because you've got to get certain rituals performed? So not only was access to all these central religious rituals, that was blocked, but even in terms of intellectual life, intellectual life went on in Sanskrit. Most people didn't know Sanskrit. It wasn't the language of the people. It was a learned language. So there were all these pressures and... Uh, then there was an ethical problem. There was a, there was a major ethical problem, uh, which you actually, which really is at the heart of the emergence of Jainism and Buddhism, and that is animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice. Just like in, in Jewish culture, there's sort of a kosher industry now. It's not that you know, let's say, an individual farmer or some guy in a village goes out and performs a sacrifice to God and the byproduct of the sacrifice is some kosher meat. You just go to the supermarket. And so in the same way, the Vedic sacrifices about 2,500 years ago had turned into a kind of sort of Vedic kosher industry. And there was massive animal sacrifice. Now, in America, a lot of people would think, and, and, the problem? But I think it's very much the credit of this ancient civilization that this sort of out-of-control animal sacrifice, which is talked about even in Hindu literature. This is not just a version of what was going on that's coming from uh, the, the competitors with Hinduism, like, say, the Jains and Buddhists. This is coming from Hindu literature. For example, Jayadev, one of the great uh, poets of Indian history, Jayadev, who wrote the famous song, Jaya Jagat Isha Hare, that all Hindus sing, actually, all the time. He, he's one of the great religious poets of Indian history, Jayadev. And in his description of Buddha, who became accepted as an avatar of Vishnu, we'll talk about that, like why, how did Buddha become an avatar of Vishnu, and we'll talk about that. But in any case, in the song to Buddha, as an avatar of the Lord, of Vishnu, it says, Sadaya Hridaya Darshita Pashukata, that Buddha was responding to, uh, out of mercy, he had, a, he had a merciful heart, and he saw the widespread slaughter of animals. Now, to give an example, in Greece, we have Empedocles. Empedocles, who was sort of like this Greek sage, wandering around, sort of like a la Indian sadhu. And Empedocles was pre-Socratic before it preached that the great the original sin of humanity, which caused the downfall of civilization, was animal sacrifice. So you have Empedocles wandering around Greece, preaching a lot of the same things as Buddha and Mahadra of the Jains. Now, remember in the Upanishads, in the Upanishads, you have this great vision that everything is one. All creatures are one. All creatures equally come from Brahman, from the Absolute, from God. There is this complete unity in everything. So apparently people took this seriously, which I think is their credit. I mean, I, I, I find it amazing that a, this huge, sophisticated civilization could respond so powerfully to this animal rights movement. It, it's, it's actually impressive. So anyway... Uh, so it was a real ethical problem. There was a lot of dissatisfaction with the fact that in a culture, which was Vedic culture, teaching that we're all one, every living creature is equally part of God or part of Brahman, or part of the Absolute, that there was this massive animal killing going on, and basically sort of like this sacrificial consumerism. The Brahmins were really... So you have this type of... You have a monopoly. The monopoly becomes unresponsive, the monopoly starts thinking of its own interests above the interests of the people it's supposed to be serving. 
you have a type of moral corruption, which is talked about later, not only by Buddhists and Jains, but by Hindus themselves. They remember this period as a time of moral corruption. And there are all kinds of responses. Now, there are responses within the Vedic tradition, especially in the, in the form of more Upanishads. And more and more people start critiquing, from within the tradition, start critiquing this, uh, the Brahmins and their rituals and their monopolies and their animal slaughter and so on. So all this started their, their superficiality. So there's a huge critique within the Vedic, the Vedic culture. But also the, the critique, the, 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 the revolt, the reaction cannot be contained within the Vedic culture. For one thing, if you remember the Panic, well, you can't remember it, so I didn't give it to you, but uh, okay. Uh, in the earliest Upanishads, in the earliest Upanishads, it's very clear that they still accept the rituals as authentic. They haven't rejected the rituals. They still accept the sacrifices, but they want to philosophize about them, and they want to subordinate the actual ritual to the wisdom, the understanding of what it's really all about. But still, they are connected to sacrifice. They still accept the caste system. They're still part of it. They're just, within the system, they're pulling for the side of wisdom and, uh, you know, really seeing everyone as part of God or part of Brahman and so on. But then, you have these other groups that arise and just want to like sort of clear the decks, like forget all of this stuff. Forget the caste system, forget the rituals, forget the Brahmins, forget the Vedas. Let's just forget all of it and reinvent religion, which is an interesting approach. Now, there are some political realities that I want to talk about that sort of favor them. So, as I said, there are about, at least historians have record of at least 63 different movements like that that wanted to clear the decks. Now, there were certain political, there was a certain political situation that very much favored the rise of Jainism and Buddhism. I don't mean to say it only rose because of that, but still there was a political reality to it, which I will explain now. Uh, in the Rig Veda, people were living on the Saraswati River here, which is northwest India. And this is, it kind of goes way up there. Over here is Pakistan now, and this is um, sort of uh, Gujarat and Maharashtra and Rajasthan and so on. So anyway, uh, so they're up in the northwest. Now there's clearly a movement which everyone accepts to the west, east. My God, to the west. Okay. To the east, because by the time you get into sort of like classical Hinduism, the geographic center is no longer the Saraswati River up here in the northwest. It's the Ganges which is very much in central India, north central India. So that whole culture of the Ganges and the Jamuna and so on. So the center, the cultural center, the geographic center of this Vedic culture is moving east. Still, Magadha, this is way over the east, actually over here. Over here is Bangladesh, and then here is West Bengal, and then here is Magadha, which is today the Indian state of Bihar, Magadha, and so on. And Orissa here. Actually, anyway, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about Buddhism. Ashok, the great patron of Buddha, his great war was down here with Kalinga, Orissa. And after that war, he sort of took, took up Buddhist ethics because it was such a horrific war. But anyway, so, it's, so this eastern part of India, the uh, you know, Bangla land, you know, east and west Bengal, which is now two, you know, it's now West Bengal, an Indian state, and Bangladesh used to be just east and west Bengal, the same region. So anyway, and then you have Magadha, Bihar. 
If you read early Vedic literatures, like, like the Shabdapata Brahman, what you find is that the Far East was kind of like the Wild East. Like we had the Wild West in America, they had the Wild East. And there's even statements like, if you know what's good for you, don't cross certain rivers over here. If you go too far east, you know, you, you may find yourself in the middle of a shoot em up. So, so in the Vedas, you have the Wild East. And, but still, what's happening is the civilization is moving eastward. Still, about 2,500 years ago, this area, certainly Bangladesh, I mean, Bengal, and even Magadha, it's still kind of a little bit beyond the pale. They certainly have Vedic civilization, but it's kind of like the frontier. And so it's not, the, the Brahmins don't have as much power there. They're not centered there. It's kind of like, well, not Alaska. But it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the frontier. And so you have a situation where religiously, culturally, it's kind of the Far East, the frontier, but politically, the power is moving this way. So you have this, if you remember in terms of dialectically, you have this tension developing where political power is going there, but religious power is here. Now, in the earlier days, in the times of the Veda, it's just like there's just one people. They've got their kings, they've got their priests. But now the political and religious power are kind of separating. And this, this is a major historical development. So, now, I'll tell you an interesting little story. Sometimes stories are good to stay awake at this time of day. So, uh, there was a kingdom here called the, uh, the Nanda dynasty. And there was a particular king called Garmanandan or something. Anyway, this king apparently was like incredibly obnoxious. He was just like, and the people, the scholars can't stand him, and, and even, you know, the subjects could, no one could, the guy was just over the top obnoxious. The way he treated people and so on. So there was a very famous minister. There was a very famous Brahmin there who, was, who wrote the most important treatise on political science in ancient Indian history, Chanakya. Chanakya, who uh, sort of was a... Anyway, I'll tell you what he did. He's been called the Machiavelli of ancient India, although some scholars object to that. But anyway, he wrote this thing called Dharma Shastra, Arthur Shastra, which is a Shastra, the scripture on pursuing your interest, which is the most important political treatise in ancient India. He was here, and he got so fed up with this obnoxious Nanda king, like, I've had it. So what he did was, he went to the Oxford of ancient India. He went, uh, sorry, where well, that please sign is there. He went way up there to northwest India, and in what is now, say, uh, Pakistan, way up in northern Pakistan, to a city called Takshashila, which is now called, uh, what do they call it in Pakistan? Takshila? Anyway. It's still a city. It's still a city there in Pakistan. It was this sort of like very prestigious university city in ancient India. And a center of learning. So he got so disgusted with this king, he went up there to this college town, sort of like the Oxford of ancient India. And meanwhile, while he's there, this guy, you know, Alexander invades India. Around that time. Alexander the Great, in, you know, comes down through northwest India. It didn't get that far, but it, it, it like, it didn't look good that Alexander's coming. So, what this Chanakya did, he organizes this confederation of local kings, because apparently the king where he was living in Tachashila thinks, hey, yeah, let's join Alexander. So, Chanakya thinks this is a disaster, uh, because, he, because this is a gateway into India, we're going to have these Greeks overrunning India. So, he organizes sort of like this confederation to resist the Greeks, 
And, and perhaps because of that, I mean, the Greeks, as you know, of the history were kind of burnt out, like hadn't seen their families in 10 years. And we're, and oops, we're going home. So the Greek version is they just wanted to go back. Uh, some Indian historians say that also seeing this powerful confederacy emerging. But in any case, uh, Chanakya had a protege, this really, really bright young prince named Chandragupta. So to make a long story short, once the Greeks turn back, they're gone. Chanakya and Chandragupta go back to the capital of Magadha, which is Pataliputra, sort of modern-day Patna, Bihar, and take over. They actually overthrow this uh, obnoxious dynasty and start a new dynasty called the Mauryan, the Mauryan dynasty. That was their last name. Oops. And it is in this dynasty, this is around 330, probably 330, 320 BCE. Now, Mahavir, the Jain, uh, is just about 150 years before that. And these Mauryans, starting with Chandragupta, and then his descendant, then you get Ashoka, who was one, practically one of the greatest emperors in Indian history. So what's happened now with all these events is that you have these little religions, these little new sort of protest religions starting in Magadha. And then meanwhile, 150 years later, which is not that much time in pre-industrial civilization, suddenly this becomes the political center of India. And this is where all the military power is. And you can understand from the point of view of the Mauryans, these Jains and Buddhists, yeah, these are our local guys. And also, Mahavir, the founder of Jainism and Buddha, they come from royal families. So I think it's not hard to see that for the Mauryan rulers, there's going to be a tremendous sympathy. Yeah, these are fellow Kshatriyas, fellow warriors uh, from our same region, and we also don't want the Brahmins telling us what to do and monopolizing everything. So, you know, I think we have a match here. And that's what happens. Uh, Jainism and Buddhism kind of get ad adopted, not in a fanatical way. Because these Mauryan rulers, they have sort of this enlightened Indian thing back then, and they actually support all religions. They're actually liberal. It's sort of like, you know, ancient Indian faith-based initiative. Anyway, they kind of support all these different religions, but they also give a real boost to Jainism and Buddhism. So that's kind of the history. Any questions on that? That's sort of what was going on historically. I mean, as far as we know. Yes? I'm still confused where Jainism flourished, where it, it was born. Yeah, we're going to talk about that right now. Okay. I just wanted to set the scene, and I want to talk about Jainism. Uh, there's never enough time. Just one more sentence on this ethical thing of animal slaughter. There was a real debate going on in India. If you look at this ancient Vedic literature, there's some literatures that say, don't kill cows, some and other animals, some literatures say, you should kill cows, you don't kill cows, you go to hell. You don't kill animals. So there was, you can see in the ancient literature real debate going on about vegetarianism, about animal slaughter. It was really debated in the scriptures themselves, what we now call scriptures. So anyway, uh, there's not really time for all of that. So uh, one interesting thing about Jainism, we'll talk about Buddhism next time, is that, um, I mean, they don't see themselves as negative. Obviously, they see themselves as affirming the most important things in life and pursuing enlightenment and so on and so forth. And yet, it does have sort of at least grammatically a negative bent. Like, here's a quote from the article I hope you all got. Um, did you all get the article? This is from page 87. So, that little anecdote to begin with. His accomplishments as a businessman are dwarfed 
before his glorious quest for world negation. Negation. World negation. The highest goal of Jain tradition. World renunciation. Negating. Renouncing. Is the dominant religious ideal in Jainism. Negation. Renunciation. And though pursued by a tiny minority, plays a central role in Jain social life and retains a powerful hold on the imagination. The, the tradition makes a singular and potentially revolutionary claim that nonviolence, ahimsa, is the only path to salvation. And that violence is the root of all human woes. I found this fascinating. I mean, it's an amazing idea that you take this moral principle, ahimsa, nonviolence, actually non-injury, like not hurting an innocent person. That's sort of what it means. And they, it becomes the center of a whole religion, a whole religion just based on not hurting other people. I mean, it's, it's I found it kind of amazing. And uh, so, you, you've all read this, the history of Jainism, they have their uh, Tirtankaras. Uh, now, the only one who's really, truly historical in the sense we really have historical documentation is Mahavir, who they claim is not the founder, but he restored something, or he sort of, you know, revived it. And they're called, now Tirtha, in Sanskrit, uh, is from a root, Tir, which means to cross. So Tirtha literally means a crossing. And this is the same root from which you get the word avatar, like incarnation, which, and ava means down, like crossing down from the spiritual plane to the material plane. So a lot of times in India you have this language of crossing, like we're here in the material world, we have to cross to the spiritual plane. So the avatars are the ones who cross down. Tirthas, a holy place. This is the most common word for pilgrimage place, or holy place in India. Tirtha, a crossing, a place where you go across the spiritual plane. And so the uh, Jain leaders were called, this makes it the accusative, Tirthankaras, or kara means maker. Uh, Makers of crossings, or ford, you know, the English word ford, not the car, but the river crossing. So, they're literally the ones who, who make the crossing, create for you a bridge to the spiritual plane. Or they're called jinas, from the Sanskrit root ji, to conquer, so jina means a conqueror, someone who's been... Because, because there's no god in this system, as you know. This is an atheistic system. Although they do believe the soul, and they use the standard Sanskrit word for soul, uh, jiva, which just means a living thing, from the root jiv, to live. Probably related to the, like, in, in Latin, you know, vi, viva. If you want to say viva, viva, in Sanskrit would be jiva, jiva. So, uh, so there's no God, but there is a soul. And because there's no God, there's no grace, there's no mercy, there's no one to pray to, except we do pray to the Tirtankaras. They kind of become like surrogate surrogate guardian angels, deities you can pray to. But ultimately, it's like this real humanistic thing that's like you against delusion, you against your nasty body. Your body's full of lust and greed and delusion, and you've got to go to battle. They use that language in this article, go to war. You've got to go to war against yourself. Interesting concept. And fight it out, duke it out, and therefore the people who win, the people who are able to fight and conquer because there's no God. God's not lifting you up. It's you're fighting it out down here. So you become a genus. You become a conqueror. Because you've conquered illusion. You know, it's a tiny majority, majority, a minority. But that's the idea. But they believe in reincarnation? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. They, they accept, and the Buddhists, as we'll see, they accept samsara, which you've read about many times. Sang means like... Anyway, never mind. Samsara means as wandering. Wandering through many lives, samsara, and the wandering is regulated, it's structured according to karma. The samsara is the actual transmigration, 
and the rules of the game which determine where you go, those are the rules of karma. It's really this cosmic ethical system that as you know, you get what you deserve. This cosmic justice. So karma is really like the rules that govern where you go and the fact you go is, is samsara. Now it's interesting, the fact that Buddhism started out atheistically, it, it changes, as we'll see. Buddhism, Buddhism is to go through amazing transformations. It's, uh, anyway, you'll see what happens to Buddhism. But this idea that, that so many of these movements were atheistic, uh, I made a little note to myself about this, if I can, there's some chance I may find it. Uh, and that is, it is dangerous, it is dangerous for religions to get too tied into uh, mundane things sometimes. Like to give an example, uh, the Catholic Church, during the Renaissance, where they became totally, totally locked into a certain astronomy, which was not even in the Bible. But they had a certain, you know, Ptolemaic, Aristotelian astronomy, which became part of the sacred beliefs of the Catholic Church. So when Galileo said, I don't think it's like that, uh, it, that was blasphemy. So because, and the church is still trying to live this down. The trial of Galileo is just, they're still trying to live that one down. So, therefore, it was, wasn't good for the priest to get too tight, get too close with uh, some mundane field like astronomy. And there are, um, anyway, there, there are many historical examples of this. Uh, and you see it even in Buddhism, because Buddhism tend to wax and wane with royal patrons. Like a king would become a Buddhist, and a whole little kingdom somewhere in Asia would become Buddhist. And then when that king would be overthrown, a new dynasty came in, that was into Buddhism there. So, uh, religion, God, or the gods, have become so tied into the caste system, so tied into this sort of brahminical uh, uh, oppression, that, um, that one reaction was people just know God. You know, it's all about ethics, it's all about nonviolence, it's all about morality, it's about human endeavor. You have to save yourself. You can be inspired by and guided by great teachers, but ultimately it's you against the illusion that's within you. And uh, any questions on, on this so far? Yes? Um, it seems to me that the, maybe the Vedic version wasn't so emphasis on this one God either. So True. I, w I don't understand may why a rebellion wouldn't come up, you know, to reject the worship of, you know, all the Indras and Devatas. Right. And rather worship like this one God? Or well, there is such a thing, but, but that, that revolution, the, re the revolution... The pro-God revolution actually happens. And actually it becomes the biggest of all these revolutions. And that's going to become modern Hinduism. Or actually, I, mean, I shouldn't say modern, classical Hinduism, which leads into modern Hinduism. So actually there is a pro-God revolution which becomes the big winner. And ultimately becomes even bigger than, much bigger than Buddhism. and actually even assimilates Buddhism, as we'll see later. Yes? Hinduism, uh, bigger religion today than Buddhism? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there are about 700 million, they have similar numbers, about 700 million in terms of, but in India, Buddhism practically has almost vanished from India. There's a few, there are little tiny revivals, but, but very little. Which is, that's another interesting thing we're going to be looking at, because Jainism and Buddhism begin at the same time, roughly, you know, they're contemporaries, Mahavir, 
and uh, Buddha, they begin at the same time, in the same state, in the same area, with the same ideas to a great extent, the center being a hingsa, nonviolence, they're both atheistic, the Jains accept a soul, an eternal soul that reincarnates and eventually achieves omniscience and omnipotence, which is ambitious, and whereas the Buddhists are more fuzzy on this and eventually their philosophers reject these things, although the Buddha himself is more ambiguous about it. And yet, and they're such different fortunes. For a time, they both kind of flourish. Because again, they're in the right place at the right time. They're coming from warrior leaders in a place that becomes the political center of India. And they get patronage. And so they both rise, they both become prominent, and they both become important. Then Buddhism, at a certain point, becomes much bigger, and then vanishes from India. Whereas Jainism is still there, although it's very small. I mean, it's, it's, it's like um, maybe one-fourth of one percent of the Indian population right now. Although it did have moments when it was very prominent, but it's still there. And so it's interesting to see these two movements starting out in a very similar way. And, and, and what happened to them, where they went, and how they reacted to the Hindu reaction to them, and, and so on and so forth. Yes? Yes? Um, why, again, did the political centers drift over? Oh, um, okay. Uh, well, for one thing, uh, the civilization was kind of moving to the east in general, for whatever reason. But, at this time, actually even before Chanakya came with Chandragupta and took over, a large political state had arisen here. And, and so in India, uh, they were always kind of like jostling, you know, princes and kings. You, if you look at Europe before the nationalist unifications in Europe, there were always battles going on between princes. And so, as history went on, it just so happened that here, uh, a sort of a strong state emerged in this part of East India. But the religious center, center was still here. So, so then you get out of this warrior, out of this political class here, you get a bunch of people that say, who, need the, who needs the Brahmins? So... That's roughly what happened. Yeah. Anything else on this? Oh, I have time for a little more. Um, another really interesting thing, I, I find it fascinating about the James. It's just, it's, they're really nice people. Like, if you meet James, they, they tend to be nice, intelligent, decent, tolerant people. A very interesting community. Are there any in the States? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely. I think the book talks about that at the end of the article. Uh, there's a what? Yeah. Who is? My roommate. Oh, your roommate. Yeah. yeah, definitely. There's, in, in fact, the Jains in America are kind of uh, active in interfaith dialogue and so on. They have this amazing philosophy, which uh, is breaking chalk right in lecture today. I just talked to Jason Nealis, who teaches Buddhism about this before the class, and uh, apparently this is a very old doctrine. Ananta, anekantavad. I'll think this means. Uh, waning minutes of this class. Uh, Ega just means one, the number one, and An just means not, not one. And that's a way in Sanskrit of saying, like, many. In other words, it's not one, it's many. So, Anega means various or many, and then Anta is just cognate with the English word end, just the English word end, uh, which means a conclusion. In this sense, like a philosophical end, a philosophical conclusion. And then Vada, from the Sanskrit root, Vada, to speak, just means like a doctrine. So the doctrine that there are, there's more than one philosophical conclusion. 
And they have this corollary of it, which is, uh, it kind of sounds funny in Sanskrit, it's called Syadva. Syad, literally in Sanskrit means could be. It's the sort of like the subjunctive form of the verb to be. And S, as I've said, it's the same S is an English word, is. So Syadva, which literally means the, it means like could be-ism. And <laughs> it's the idea that whatever anyone says, well, it could be. And the Jains, like the most, their central story they tell to explain what these doctrines mean is the blind man and the elephant. You know, a bunch of blind men come across an elephant, someone touches a trunk, it's like a pillar, someone touches the body, it's like a wall, or, no, I'm sorry, the legs are the pillar, the trunk is the fire hose or something. But anyway, so, blind men, they touch the different parts of the elephant, and they all, and well, an elephant's like a wall, siad, could be. An elephant is like a pillar. Shot again. That could be too. Or it's like this. So the ideas are different perspectives. But the thing that came to my mind is, okay, let's say we take this seriously, this anekantavad. Not one conclusion doctrine. Anekantavad. What if the idea there's no God is just one point of view? What if from, in, in a particular context, in a particular psychological state, there's no God, but what if that's just a relative view? Or there's an Ekantavad. So the Jains, like I said, I mean, they're very nice people, they're nice, intelligent people, a lot of them, and uh, so they have sort of this liberal approach, and they do interfaith dialogue and so on, and they have this thing called, what, what did the book call it? Uh, careful integration, cautious integration or something? Because they've always been, they've been minority for a very long time, and they were kind of found ways to fit in. They, they found a way to, to make it all work. And they developed this. Also, it's not mentioned in the book, but apparently because they were so fixed on nonviolence, uh, they didn't do farming. Because when you farm, you kill a lot of people. I mean, when you plow, it's like, you know, you really raise a ruckus in the soil when you plow. And so they got into business and trade, and they became very good at it. And they're actually quite an affluent community in India, which means they're educated people. And so they're kind of like this educated, liberal group of people, but, but if you take this very seriously, this Anegantavad and Syabad, could beism, then uh, how, does that, how does that relate to the idea that there's no God? Or there is or isn't a soul? And so, ultimately, what's really the bottom line? Huh? It could be. Could be, right, Syabad. So, uh, so any other questions on this? Interestingly, they also, even though they were against the caste system, the book says that they developed their own caste Well, yeah, I mean, they, they got the patron of kings. How do you go to a king and say, hey, guess what, Maharaj, you're not really a king? Yeah. And so they're against the caste system, but as they begin to get the favor of kings and as they inevitably get their own learned scholars who do become gurus and teachers, Suddenly, you've again got a class of teachers and wise people. You've got kings. You've got merchants who are funding who are funding the religions. So you don't want to step on their toes. And social hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's it's a very interesting. So I guess Lenjir, thank you very much. I guess we'll see you on Wednesday. <laughs>